Welcome to the sermon podcast of Exodus Church, located in Belmont, North Carolina. For more information about our church and the many ways you can be involved, please go to our website at theexoduschurch.org or email us at info at theexoduschurch.org. So that being said, let's turn in God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing in our series, uh, A King and His Kingdom. And we're going to, be, uh, we're going to start in uh, verse 17 this morning. As you're turning there, if, uh, if you know at least a little bit about me, actually, I think this is actually on our website. One of the things, one of my hobbies of choice, at least for a while, was something called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a form of martial arts that, per my wife's requirements, if I was going to do that, didn't require or didn't involve any punching or kicking. Um, and so it's just grappling and submission. Uh, but one of my, when I was doing it a lot, one of my favorite things about it, about it was every Saturday, um, I would get the kids, I would take the kids with me, so Katie got a quiet house. And I would go in, in to what's called open mat. So if you're not a martial arts nerd, open mat is where you just go and spar for two hours. And if you're new and inexperienced like I was, that means you go and you get beat for two hours. And one of my favorite parts about that is I would come home with bruises and scratches and black eyes, generally all over my face. And where I thought that was awesome, right? right? This, this would have made me cool in high school. Uh, my wife's like, oh, great. You look like you spent the weekend making poor personal decisions. Or she said once, I came home one time with a significant black eye and a swollen cheek, and she's like, Tyler, they might think I did this. Like, but what I loved about it so much and what, and what she understood that I loved is, is those marks, those bruises, those, those scratches, and now some scars, to, to me, represented who I belonged to. It, it was proof that I, I trained at this school, that I did what I, I said that I did, that I belonged to this thing. And this morning, as we, we continue through our study of Matthew is Jesus lays out his kingdom and the kingdom that he's building before us. What we see this morning is a call to bear marks, to, to live a life that reflects proof that we belong to the king who we claim we belong to. He calls us this morning to bear the mark of righteousness and not righteousness as we understand it or our standard of righteousness, but to bear his righteousness. In fact, he tells us this morning that unless we have righteousness, his righteousness, we won't see the kingdom of heaven. And so what we see this morning is that because our king is building a righteous kingdom, we have to pursue his righteousness. And this morning he lays out before us what that means and how we do it. So I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into God's word together. Let's look now at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. And Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together, and thank you for the gift of your word, for the promises that you give us in your word, and for the calling to respond to those promises that you give us. And as we look now at the the weighty task of of bearing your righteousness, of having your righteousness, Father, I pray that you would make your gospel and your grace clearer than anything. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through your word, and I pray that we would leave here more committed to pursuing you and your righteousness. We ask this in your name. Amen. So we have to pursue Christ's righteousness. Matthew lays, lays out three things for us to do 
Uh, we pursue righteousness, one. I'll give you the three points, and we'll unpack each of them. We pursue Christ's righteousness first by relying on Christ for his righteousness. Second, we'll see that we pursue his righteousness by responding to him in obedience. And then third, we'll see that we pursue his righteousness by raising our standard of obedience. So first, we pursue Christ's righteousness by relying on Christ. Look again at verses 17 and 18. And Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So first we rely on Christ for his righteousness. And in order to rely on Jesus, we've got to recognize who he is and what he came to do versus who he's not and what he didn't come to do. So when Jesus makes this particular statement, so this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and if you look at Matthew 5 within the context of the other gospels and kind of where it sits in the timeline, what you'll, what you'll see and what you'll learn is that almost every time Jesus is preaching, teaching, or performing miracles, there's a mixed audience. Right? And Matthew was, was a, a, a Jewish tax collector, so writing to a primarily Jewish audience, Matthew would have understood that some, some of the people in the audience would have been Pharisees. Some of the people in the audience would have been people who were very committed to the teaching of the Pharisees. Now, a disclaimer is it's easy. If you've grown up around the church or a little bit of Bible school under your belt, you've been taught at some point or another the Pharisees were the bad guys, right? Cartoon pictures of them. They're always frowning. They're always angry, right? And understandably so, right? They, they led the charge in crucifying Jesus. But here's the scary thing is that the Pharisees got to where they got because they were so committed to doing what they thought was right. And so when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, abolish means to disregard or to set aside, I came to fulfill it. He is, first of all, answering a a fear, a concern that the Pharisees have raised and a misunderstanding that other Jews have raised. So one, the concern is that Jesus came to disregard the law. The Pharisees were the defenders of the law. That was their job. In in that culture, in that time, the Pharisees were your today's would have been today's equivalent of your local church pastors and your private Christian school teachers. That's who the Pharisees were. And so they their task was to defend God's law and instruct God's people in keeping that law. And at this point in history, they'd had to recover it from numerous occasions, different kings, people coming in trying to overthrow it. So they were protective of it. And they see Jesus as just one more new teacher who's coming to disregard what God had given them. At the same time, there were some who were saying, yeah, he's coming to abolish the law because he's coming to set up a new earthly kingdom. He's going to get Rome out of here, and we're going to have our power back. And so when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, what he's doing is he's answering that misconception and that concern. To the Pharisees, your concern is that I came to overthrow or disregard what Abraham and Moses gave you, what the prophets gave you? You you misunderstand that. He's saying, in fact, you're so committed to your own way of thinking that you're missing the Messiah that's right in front of you that all of these things build up to. If you compare this section of Scripture to Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 7, you'll see where the Pharisees, have they've confronted Jesus because his disciples plucked grain on the Sabbath. Jesus comes to him, and, he, and instead of, of saying, yeah, you're right, he heals a man on the Sabbath right in front of them. He challenges them. Is it better to, to heal and bring life on the Sabbath, or is it better to harm? The Pharisees have seen him eat dinner and share meals with prostitutes and tax collectors and other social outcasts of the day. They've seen him literally put his hands on lepers to heal them. By their standards, that was ceremonial unclean, ceremonially unclean. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I didn't come to overthrow or disregard anything. I'm fulfilling. 
He also challenges the Pharisees with this, that he's like, you're so concerned about my disciples washing their hands or washing pots and pans a certain way, and yet you've disregarded God's command to honor your father and mother. So what Jesus is doing here is addressing a concern that the Pharisees have brought up more than once, that he came to disregard what God gave them in the law and the prophets. And he's saying to them, you've been so committed to your way of thinking that you've lost the truth in all of this. You've become so confident in your own interpretations, in your own abilities, in your own rules, that now you're exchanging my righteousness for your own righteousness. The people that expected him to come in and set up a new kingdom are so committed to what they thought that they're missing the true king and a better kingdom. And so when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, the first thing he's doing, he's calling his people to understand that we need to focus on his kingdom and his righteousness over and above our own. That in any sphere of life, we've got to check our opinions and our standards and what we think may be right or wrong. We've, that's always got to be submissive to what God's word says. That's regardless of what country you live in, what county you live in, what your political preference is. That comes down to the way that you choose to school your kids or the way that you parent. It's got to be God's standard and God's truth and God's righteousness that drives that, not our own opinions. Because what we were all in danger of is being like the Pharisees, confident, committed to what we think is the right thing. And when we're not careful and we're not checking that to God's standards and God's word, we wind up missing the Savior. We wind up missing the Messiah that the word and the law and the prophets are all about. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish or disregard, I came to fulfill. And that moves us to what does it mean to fulfill the law and the prophets? Now, there have been gigantic books and lots of them written on what it means for Christ to fulfill the law. So we're not getting a dissertation this morning, and you wouldn't want a dissertation from me anyway. But here's the quick version of what this means. This is phenomenal news. Matthew, I was reading and preparing for this over the last couple of weeks. One writer says this, that if you can get your head even just a little bit around Matthew, Matthew 5, 17 and 18, the rest of the Bible opens up to you. One pastor says, if you can just spend a little bit of time sitting and soaking in Matthew, 7, Matthew 5, 17 and 18, you might make it through your one-year Bible reading plan this year because you won't give up when you get to Leviticus. Right, Genesis is good. Exodus is pretty exciting. Numbers starts to slow down. You get to Leviticus, you're like, man, Ephesians, 1 John. We got we to get out of the Old Testament. But if we get Matthew 5, 17, and 18, that stuff becomes exciting. That stuff brings life with it. It says, I came to fulfill the law. So the law, it, you would break down into three categories. You have, would have what's called civil law, which is around governing things, uh, ceremonial law, which was all the crazy stuff that you read in the, the first five books of the Bible, the sacrifices you had to make, what you had to do to get into the temple to be able to pray and all these sorts of things, all the food laws that we're grateful we don't have anymore. And then you had moral law, the way you had to live, the moral standard you had to keep in order to belong to God, to be one of his people. And in this particular phrase, Jesus is saying, I covered all of it. Civil law, you don't need an earthly king anymore because I have come to be the king that you've always needed. You were originally created to have me as a king. You exchange that for earthly kings. I'm coming to say, you don't need the civil anymore because I'm that king. Not just of the Jews, not just of Israel, of the globe, of the world. Ceremonial law. Put yourself back in Old Testament times. To get in this morning, we would have, every one of you had to kill some sort of animal or the priest would have had to do it for you. 
If you prayed this morning before you came to church, you'd have had to burn incense. We get to take communion before this service is over, celebrating the presence of God with us. You don't have to burn incense. In fact, if you did, you, you might freak somebody next to you out, right? One, one author uh, on a commentary says, you get, to eat shell, you get to eat snow crab. I'm allergic to shellfish. That didn't resonate with me, but this is a South. We get barbecue. We get bacon, right? The food laws are taken care of because the ceremonial requirements for God's people to be able to enter his presence are met fully when Jesus shows up. And then the moral law, which if you, if you want just a picture of the moral law, Matthew 5, where, we, where we're at right now, and Matthew 6, beyond it. But the Ten Commandments, right? The, the standards God set and said, if you're going to be mine, this is what you've got to meet. And yet, if you keep reading Matthew 5, you'll see that we fall short of that standard day in and day out. But what Jesus says, I came to fulfill it. I came to complete it so that you can enter a house of worship, so you can come to God in prayer. You can take communion. You can celebrate with one another. You can eat foods and know that he is good because he has met the requirements that you could not meet. And he doesn't just say law. He says prophets which could take you all the way back to Genesis when God says to Abraham, can you count the stars? No, nobody can count the stars. That's the size of the family I'm gonna give you. When he says to David, from your line, a king is gonna sit on the throne forever. That's him. When Isaiah says, a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. When the the Messiah comes, he's gonna be pierced for your transgressions. That's him. And so this picture Jesus is painting, he is challenging us to let go of our own righteousness, to surrender to his standard, to not, to not follow in the steps of the Pharisees and miss what God has for you. And at the same time, to rejoice in that you've got a promise that you can trust. Every promise a prophet made, Jesus has kept. In fact, all you've got to do is turn back one chapter to Matthew 4. And when Satan is tempting Jesus, Jesus starts quoting scripture to Satan for the sole purpose of saying, the prophet said this was going to happen. I'm here. Now it's happening. So you've got a promise that you can trust and you've got a king who's met the standards necessary for you to benefit from that promise. Jesus didn't come to disregard the law. He came to fulfill the law, to complete it, to keep it, to honor it in a way that we could not so that we could be connected to God, so that we could be a part of this new kingdom that he's building. Not a kingdom that will end and not a kingdom that will fade and not a kingdom that that disintegrates when the newest pandemic hits, a kingdom that will last forever. It requires his righteousness. But the way that we get that righteousness is recognizing him as the king and the savior and the Messiah and surrendering to him, acknowledging there is not a thing we can do to earn his favor except submit and surrender to him. So first of all, we pursue his righteousness, church, by acknowledging that we can't be righteous on our own. And by coming to a Savior who came and shed his blood, Hebrews 10 said he is the sacrifice once and for all. He shed his blood, he gave his life, he conquered death to fulfill this so that you could have his righteousness. Now, we rely on him for his righteousness. Second, in our pursuit of Christ's righteousness, we have to respond to all that he's done with obedience. That's what we see next. We pursue his righteousness by responding to obedience. Look at verse 19. It says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
So if we relax the law and we teach others to do the same, we're least in the kingdom of heaven. If we obey it and we teach others to do the same, then we're great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's what's not happening. Jesus is not laying down the gauntlet and saying, who gets to be my favorite, right? Like, here's the contest, the fastest and the strongest wins. That's not what he's doing. What he is doing, so we talked about the three components of the law. At this point, Jesus has moved from the, the whole law to moral law. At least that's, that's the opinion we hold because if you, if you continue to read through Matthew 5 and 6, he starts to unpack how we're supposed to live. What he's doing is he's challenging those. So again, we, ha- we have the Pharisees in the crowd and those who kind of follow the Pharisees. Also in the crowd are those who are excited about this new king who's saying, hey, I was told I couldn't be near the temple. Now I can be, I can be close to God. You're taking care of the law for me. And then suddenly Jesus starts to lay some weight on them as well. Like, it's not as simple as you saying, yes, I want the free gift and no, I don't want to do anything else with it. Church, Christians are called to be holy. We are called to be righteous. And in a world where nothing is certain, if we're claiming we have the one thing that's certain, we have to look different than the rest of the world does. And Jesus has given us clear standards for what it looks like to belong to him and to obey him, to live for him. The verses before the ones we're in this morning, be salt and light in the world. That doesn't occur if we, if we are no different than the world around us. And so what he is saying is if you say, yes, I want to believe, yes, I want to follow Jesus, and, and no, I'm not going to live any differently. I'm not going to lay old sins down. I'm not going to pursue growth. I'm not going to, not, not, not going to even bother learning his words so I know what it means to follow him. And I'm just going to encourage others that, hey, you don't have to worry about it. You're saved by grace, which I don't know that any of you would consciously do, but every one of us at least has done it in the way that we've lived. And there are people with that mindset that we're saved by grace. The way we live doesn't matter. Jesus is saying, if that's your response, then you're missing what I've done. You're disregarding all that I've fulfilled and have come to fulfill. He says, if you're going to follow me, not only do you need to obey me, but you need to be prepared to know me well enough to lead others in what it means to follow me. So he says, if, if you keep my law and you teach others to do the same, you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. That's essentially Jesus calling his people to disciple others. And let's not forget that part of, part of the people in this particular crowd are his disciples. The guys who have, whether they knew fully what they were getting into or not, dropped fishing nets, careers, tax collecting jobs, and left family members behind to follow him. And now they're starting to get a little bit clearer of a picture of, oh man, this is what we got ourselves into. And Jesus is saying just as much to them as anyone else in the audience, if you are going to follow me, you need to know me and you need to be ready to lead others to do the same, both with your words and with your life. I was privileged enough to be at a preaching conference this past week and, um, but the, the, it may sound terribly boring, it was exciting for me, but the, the thrust of the conference is to teach you how to preach better, for lack of a better description. And one of the men leading the conference, the, one of the final instructional periods of the, the day, the paraphrase of what he said, so we've been learning different techniques and, and study tools and things like that, and he comes out and just kind of drops a bomb on the room and says, here's your next instruction. The life of a pastor has to be the greatest sermon that he preaches, that he can be he can be as entertaining or as eloquent in the pulpit as anyone that's, that's ever preached. But if his life does not reflect the commitment he claims in the pulpit, he's what the Bible would call useless. 
Now that's true for pastors. That's true for all of us. That our life has to reflect, has to mirror, has to mimic the king that we claim we belong to. And if Christianity has been something you're unsure about because you're not sure that you see differences in people that claim it, that's not what Christ calls you to. Christ calls you to, to look different. Christ calls you to follow him. Christ calls you to a different standard. And that's what we see our last, our last point, our last step that Matthew gives us for pursuing Christ's righteousness is this, that we, we rely on him, we respond to him in obedience, and then connected to responding in obedience, we raise our standard of obedience. Look at verse 20. It says, for I tell you, unless righteousness, ex- excuse me, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I need to let that sit for a minute. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you put yourself in the position of the people, the, the majority of the people that had come to hear Jesus preach at this point, the disciples, the, those like the disciples who were kind of the social outcasts, the disenfranchised, and they're tracking with him, and they're excited, and he's fulfilled the law, and we've got a place in this kingdom, and the Pharisees missed it. And all of a sudden, he drops this bomb. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you don't have a place in the kingdom of heaven. And suddenly, the hope that's been built, the excitement that Jesus had probably built at this point in the Sermon on the Mount stops. It's almost like the, the flat line starts to occur. Because all of a sudden, he, he lays this claim that changes the way that anyone that had been listening starts to think about what it means to belong to him. So we mentioned earlier, the Pharisees, you know, understandably so, are, are the bad guys in most of the stories in the gospel. But as we also mentioned, they were the equivalent of the local church pastor. They were, by title, the defenders of God's law. That was their job, was to keep it. And so if you want to talk about Scripture memory, some of you, I'm sure, are phenomenal at that. The entry-level requirement for the Pharisees and the scribes was to have the first five books of the Bible, we call the Pentateuch, memorized. In Hebrew, shocker, English wasn't around. And if you've ever been blessed enough to take a Hebrew class and you did well at it, then you're holier than I am because I loved seminary until I got to Hebrew. That's the closest I've ever gotten to throwing a textbook out a window. They had it memorized. First five books of the Bible, like we said earlier, the books that generally get us out of our one-year Bible reading plans, they had it memorized, memorized. They valued God's word. They took the time to know God's word to the point that they could recite it without looking at it. Righteous living, staying away from things that were considered unclean, there was nobody better. Active righteousness, taking care of the poor, teaching others. Spiritual disciplines like fasting and keeping ceremonies and food laws. Like The Pharisees had it on lot. They were a different category of righteousness than any of us could ever fathom. So we've got to raise our standard of obedience. As Jesus says, unless our righteousness surpasses theirs, we won't see the kingdom of heaven. But here's where the good news comes back. Here's where, where grace steps back in because it'd be easy if you just read that verse to, well, that contradicts being saved by grace. But in read in the, in the context of the verses we've been going through, in the context of the whole Bible, it doesn't. 
What it is, is it's a call to raise our standard of obedience from box checking to worship. To take your standard of obedience from I'm trying my hardest to do the right thing because either I, I want to tell myself I'm doing the right thing or because you're sincerely trying to do the right thing and take it from box checking to worship. Because all of the, the things the Pharisees did right in the gospels, do you know what Jesus calls them closer to the end of Jesus's ministry? Whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside and inside you are dead. Inside there is nothing more than a corpse. What Jesus is after is internal righteousness that spills out into the way that you live your life. Internal gratitude that comes from understanding what it cost him to win you. Understanding how beautiful the offer of grace is. I died for you. God says, I sent my son because I want you a part of my kingdom. Surrendering to that. And letting heart change take place so that the way you live your life reflects the king who saved you and who you belong to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian during Holocaust Germany, calls that costly grace versus cheap grace. This is a, a quote from Bonhoeffer. It says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Without Christ's righteousness, we don't see the kingdom of heaven. That's a weighty thing to understand. And the good news is that Christ has done the work necessary for us to receive his righteousness. Romans 8 says, if you're in Christ, you are heirs or co-heirs with Christ. It's using family language. You, in the same category of Jesus, inherit all the riches the Father has. Which means that when Jesus was baptized and the sky opens up and it says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, that if you have said yes to Jesus, God looks at you and he sees that righteousness. He sees you as his son or his daughter with whom he's well pleased. He came to fulfill the law to make that possible. But pursuing his righteousness not only means surrendering to him, saying, I want that free gift, but allowing our hearts to be changed and living in response to that gift in a way that reflect the righteousness and the goodness of the king that did the work to save you. That's how we pursue his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for bringing us uh, together, God, but most of all, for giving us your word that we would know you, that we would know what it is to belong to you. We know what it costs to belong to you. And Lord, that's what I pray, is that our standard of righteousness would be your standard of righteousness, that our lives in every area would reflect our trust in you, reflect the king that's so good to save us. We ask this in your name. Amen.